Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so happy to be talking with Thomas Hanna, probably better known on Twitter as at which is where we met, actually. So thanks for dropping in to MindShift Podcast, Thomas. Hi, well, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, too, especially as we were talking about before we hit record. We've got some mutual friends. First of all, you were just on the Neil604 YouTube channel. And I met Neil a couple of years ago up in Vancouver. He was on my podcast a few years ago. So one of the cool highlights of that trip going up from Seattle to Vancouver, aside from meeting Neil and a bunch of people, we went to a big pub in Vancouver, was going to a liquor store in, in Vancouver. Yeah. I've got a great picture of Neil standing in front of a huge rack of beer on the floor. And so he directed me to some fantastic beer, some local beers, you know, so I have a special place in my heart for, for Neil 604. Cool. Uh, local, it was amazing. Local Vancouver beer, huh? Oh, man. And that's the thing. You've got to get in with the locals, don't you? Because obviously you can buy the stuff that's produced everywhere. But it's like if you come here to the UK, I'll take you on a pub crawl, which is what they call it, you know, going from when they whenever, when everything opens up again, hopefully. Um, and you've got to learn what the good local beers and ales are, you know, so that I'll, I'll, if you ever come over and visit, you've got a place to stay. We'll go on a pub crawl. Hopefully, oh, if man, things are open up, <laughs> we'll get some really that. good local ales and ciders and all that. Yeah, they've got some. They've got some um, neat little, you know, breweries here in in Central Florida. But I don't know how that would compare to the UK because everything I hear about about UK beer is legendary. So, oh yeah, <laughs> it used to have a, it used to have a reputation for serving warm beer, but they've got some fantastic. I mean, you can get anything you want from porters to stouts to ales to golden ales lagers you name it everything in between amazing ciders yeah that's what i like give me the dark give me the dark ones yeah okay we can set you up with that now as we were chatting before we hit record as well we found out that we are both ex-pastors so we have a lot in common there and you were talking about you wrote a book a few years ago on the book of ephesians which resonated with me because that was kind of my cornerstone of my philosophy of ministry probably the last eight or 10 years when I was a pastor and a Bible college teacher. So I'm interested to hear your backstory. What, what was your story in, in evangelicalism? Did you grow up in the church or were you a uh, you know, convert later in life? Well, yes, I grew up in the church, although it was interesting. So I, I grew, I, man, I jumped also, I jumped denominations all over the place before I settled in um, and was pursuing ordination. But I grew up in the Lutheran church and then in high in let's see about high school um became involved in like a pentecostal charismatic church so we right. kind of like went all sorts of all sorts of nuts with that that was last um <laughs> i can imagine that's a big jump <laughs> yeah well and and uh, and i was involved with volunteering with other churches because i liked at that time i liked the idea of of being cross-denominational so not being isolated in this but being crossed which i think interestingly is a mindset that eventually helped 
lead me out of it altogether mm -hmm. because it really was my connections with people outside the church entirely that helped me to be able to see perspectives on that. Mm -hmm. but there was a point in there where I believed that I was called by God to be a pastor. And so that was the main focus of what, everything I wanted to do. And even though my entire family was Christians, they would often turn to me for learning questions about the Bible or for prayer or if they needed spiritual support or things like that. Um, and we would have those type of type of conversations. So I kind of stepped into a role where rather than being the one that was kind of the, the recipient of like really, like really heavy Christianity, I was kind of the giver. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you were the pastor of the family I, sort of thing. I, I was, and that was how I, that was kind of how I viewed some of that as well. Right. So did you go off to Bible college and seminary like the typical sort of wannabe pastor? Sort of. So yes, when I so when I graduated high school, this this ticked my, my parents off a little bit. They were excited about me being a pastor, so they weren't ticked off too much. But I actually was offered, I, I grew up in Arizona and I was offered a full ride to any of the three local universities, so Arizona State University, NAU, or U of A. I would have had a full ride to any of them. Or I could go to Grand Canyon University, which now a lot of people know because they're, they're just huge online and some of their credibility has dropped. At that point, they were, they were just a geographically located campus. Yeah, they had a physical um, campus. Yeah, they were a physical campus, and they were and they were a Christian campus that offered a degree in biblical studies and theology. So I went there with a fifty percent scholarship, which was kind of a wash because their tuition was double as the state tuition anyway. So it would have been like, oh my God, all these other without. Yeah, you weren't looking looking at it from a financial point of view, were you? Oh, man, it was it was that, and so I and I realized partway in that I was learning a lot about the Bible, but not not a lot about how to teach it or communicate it or things like that. So instead of majoring in biblical studies and theology, I actually dropped that to my minor and I double majored in secondary education and theater. I learned how to teach things, learn how to mm. present, communicate, presence, all of that type of stuff. And then still kind of have a core in theology and then went and because my emphasis was also at that point was to be a youth pastor. Did that for a while and then um, and then went back and went to seminary and did my Master's of Divinity degree at Asbury Theological Seminary out here in Florida. All and, right. Okay. So you've been to seminary. You did that whole route. Yeah. Yeah. Because that sounds very similar to my trajectory. I was up in Seattle. I grew up there. And same kind of thing, wrestling for a couple of years about wanting to be some sort of a pastor, teacher. The clear route seems to be, yeah, you go to a Bible college. That seems to be the default setting. So I went off down to Portland and then ended up going to seminary there as well. So yeah, then you end up getting stuck in at a church, or you and I was a youth pastor as well. So mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> so far, we're on a, tr a parallel yeah, track true. here. That is your career trajectory in ministry. It is. You got to do the youth pastor gig. Youth pastor. Yeah, and build up from there. Mm -hmm. Right. So this was after you were in seminary. You were a youth pastor, or between? You said I was. I was a youth. I, I I was actually a youth pastor even while I was in working on my undergraduate degree. Right. Um, and so I, I did several different churches as a youth, as a youth pastor, youth director, and then decided I wanted to be ordained as a Methodist. And that was just the theology that I found I resonated with the most, a Wesleyan-based mm. theology. So went to seminary and then became, um, and then came back in the, 
the way that the United Methodist Conf Church works is they're an appointment system. So you're not hired by the local church. You're hired by the conference that oversees like a particular area. So this is the Florida conference oversees Florida. They hire you and they appoint you to a church. So their, their goal is to try to match the needs of a church with the skills of the pastor. But in reality, there's, there's just a lot of political, there's a lot of political maneuvering. So I was mm -hmm. appointed to a little church, to, to a little church um, in large part because I was, I happened to be present as a youth director at a church prior to that when the senior pastor had a heart attack and had to step out for like a month and a half. And I took over running that church and the district superintendent initially stepped in and tried to save it and then saw I was doing an okay job. And so let me run with it. And that built that relationship. So now they were happy to just put mm -hmm. me in another church. A lot of that is presented as the guidance of the spirit, but it's really a lot of, a lot of political maneuvering. politics. It's so strange to me when I was a pastor, because my whole experience growing up in churches, as well as being a youth pastor and then a pastor and an elder and all that was always independent churches. So you, you just put the word out, you're looking for somebody for whatever position you, you throw the, the application on Christian websites and all this, you get floods of resumes and it's so different, isn't it, than being appointed? Because I had yeah. some friends in, in our local town where our church was, south of Portland, that were part of the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church oh, USA. Okay. And they were the same kind of thing. They might serve in a church for three or four years and then get moved across the country. You know, so the, everyone knew they weren't going to be staying at that church for more than about maybe three or four years. I always thought that was so strange because it's kind of like being in the military, isn't it? You just get stationed. Yeah. You can go anywhere. And yeah. be sent almost, and then here's a new congregation. You got to get to know everybody and they've got to get to know you. I can't even imagine being in that sort of a setting. It had to have been tough. It was, well, I mean, in my, in my personal experience of it, the church that I was appointed as a senior pastor, the church did well. They didn't move me. I was there for, what, for five years or so. And it was the latter part of that. I stepped away because I had stepped away from the faith entirely. So I didn't actually... I didn't actually undergo the process of leaving and rebuilding with another church myself, but I, I participated in that with uh, like where I was a youth director and that senior pastor who had planted that church, who had established that church in the first place, then moved another pastor came in and I've seen, and I've been part of um, ones prior to that where we would transition. And that transition is always hard on the congregation. Yeah, um, there are some benefits to it. There are, um, but there's also, there are also some major transitions that can be difficult. So okay, so you're a pastor of a church. You've been off to seminary. You did an MDiv degree. How did you deconstruct? Because a lot of people would have just stayed there and done that gig for the rest of their lives and maybe been quite happy. Yeah, How so, did that all come about? So in seminary, part of, I mean, the, the idea of seminary is that they're preparing people to try to be pastors and to go out and serve the world for Jesus, right? So part of that is, this exploration of what what is the landscape that we're going to be stepping into and at that time what we've been looking at in terms of census information uh, sociographic data and stuff like that is we're looking at this rise of the people that identify as non-religious um, and we still see that number kind of thrown out a lot it doesn't since discovered it doesn't mean what we thought it meant then but at that point i want to say that was 2012 we were seeing this major rise of people that don't identify as religious and the interpretation of that at the time was that this meant that we were seeing a major rise in atheism 
And we were quickly moving towards being a post-Christian culture. Yep, you're speaking Eric the language, just, man. Right, that was the idea. Post-modernism, post-Christian, I've heard it all. I used to teach it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, and that was my, well, I told you that I eventually wrote that that book uh, that was yeah. on BG, and that was what it was, it was Raising Ephesus, was it Christian Hope for a Post-Christian World or something like that. I, I have to I don't remember exactly, but it, was, but it still used the language, and it was drawing on this idea of the landscape changing. But so I had this idea that, well, I'm going to be a pastor now in an environment where the culture is quickly moving away from Christianity and moving towards atheism. So if I'm going to do that, I have to, I have to really have a good understanding of this community because the understand the thinking of what atheism is within the Christian bubble is totally different than the reality of it. It's there. It's almost as, you know, it's like another church, right? It's mm. like, okay, I've got to go learn what the Baptists think and the atheists think like, that's the idea. <laughs> so gotta learn the culture. Right. So, yeah. Very much. I was going to say that's very much Francis Schaefer. I've been talking to Frank Schaefer a lot. We just had that conversation about that's the model that his dad basically promoted, isn't it? You've got to learn that you've got to be able to talk their language. You've got to learn the culture so that you can then be missional and you can then win them for Christ. And that's the language too. Yeah, be that's it. Right? Missional. Yeah, or, or, absolutely. Or, or um, incarnational is the yeah. other the other term. That yeah. we, you have to live Jesus out. So, yeah. and I didn't want to do that by like pulling a bunch of apologetics books about atheism because I was at least, at least aware enough to know that, that historically a lot of the things I'd pull from apologetics about that are written by Christians about cultures that are not Christian is, is distorted. Mm. So I decided I need to go out and I need to actually know and meet and build relationships with people that are not Christians that are specifically that are atheists. And so I started looking at it online groups. I started looking at connecting with meetup groups. I started trying to meet and connect and build relationships with people. The problem is that exposes you to the thinking and the awareness of the things that you just don't see when you're still inside the bubble. When you step mm -hmm. outside and look back and you can go, oh, there's, there's a lot of problems here that you can't see when you're, when you're right up close mm -hmm. to it. You're in the bubble. Yeah, and so that was really the process that began that move away. And eventually I came to a point, even as, when I was a, as a pastor, there's a point where your livelihood and your future and your career is tied to maintaining and, and sustaining a certain set of beliefs. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that becomes doubly so when you go back and you look and say, since high school, everything that I have tried to learn, build, develop has reinforced this idea of, of this particular set of beliefs and my career and everything that I know is tied up in that. So if I remove that, what is left? And that's rather terrifying. So I managed to come to a point where I could sort of suspend that disbelief for a period. And my, my logic with this was that um, God has always been faithful. I don't know what that means. I, but that was good Christian language. So um, if God has always been faithful to me in the past, then I can trust that he is faithful. So even when I don't understand things, even when things don't make sense, I can trust God rather than my own understanding. And that's kind of the model that we often present in terms of how we wrestle with cognitive dissonance. 
So I, I had just, I had accepted that for a while until I hit this point where I couldn't continue in ministry anyway, because, um, and we had talked a little bit beforehand about this. You mentioned the moving around, like the military. So mm-hmm. I, my wife at the time did not want to move. She was like, you know what? I, I'm at a point now where I want to get a house. I want to settle down and I want that to be where I live. And I was like, that's not what we signed up for. And she eventually said, look, you have a choice. You can either continue to be a pastor or you can continue to be married. And so I chose to continue to be married. That didn't work out either. But at the time. <laughs> okay. So you're over for 2 on that front. <laughs> over for 2, right? So, but I, not- I then notified the, the district that I was removing myself from, um, from that pool of pastors and, and from finalizing the ordination process. Ordination in the United Methodist Church is like a 10-year process. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a lengthy process, and I was a little over halfway through it. So I removed myself from that, and then, but they still kept me at the church until they had somebody else they were going to move in. So I was still at the church for another, I think, two years maybe. But now my livelihood is no longer tied to that because that livelihood is gone anyway. And so I began to explore, well, what, what is going to be next? How, what can I still apply these skills mm-hmm. in? What can I transition over into? What do I know? Um, and went through a couple iterations. That was when I began writing. That was when I had, I had a ministry site um, that did rather well that I, I mentioned to you. I published the book. Um, that spun over into um, marketing because the marketing that I did for my website and for my book did really, really well. And some people wanted to know how they could do it. So I wound up stepping over and doing a digital marketing thing for a while that did fairly well. But then in that process, I was developing my skills as a photographer because I was incorporating that in with that. And then um, a photography studio decided they wanted to hire me. And so I wound up doing their, their editing. And so, so we kind of went through these iterations until mm-hmm. finally I decided, well, not all of these are just kind of experiment, but what is it that I really enjoyed that, that connected me to even wanting to do ministry and stuff in the first place. And what I came back to was I, I really, the thing that I always loved more than that was I loved feeling like I was actually helping people in some way. And that caused me to reflect and realize that some of my early experiences that kind of moved me towards ministry weren't actually ministerial. They were in connection with one group in particular that was focused on, it was a mental health thing for youth, but it, it was kind of like cultivating, you know, all sorts of different healthy psychological skills and things like that that had a big influence on me and that I enjoyed volunteering with and realized that that really still resonated with me. So I went back and did another master's degree, did a master's in clinical mental health counseling and psychology at Troy University, graduated from there, and then went and did my licensure as a licensed clinical mental health therapist and did a couple specializations, depression, anxiety, trauma specializations, and then was exposed to some of the work of Dr. Winnell that you, I know you had mentioned, Mm -hmm. um, that you had spoken with, and that made me aware of a lot of the things that I was already seeing. And so started building on that, drawing not only from my own experiences and awareness of the things I've seen in the church and my exposure to a lot of the theology and the way that shaped things, but also being able to then bring in the research that now is really starting to grow surrounding the impact of religion and uh, religion and mental health mm-hmm. and being able to bring that into people that are now trying to recover from ways 
that sort of toxic theology has caused harm to them. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of where I've now landed in that process. Yeah, and I think we want to get into religious trauma syndrome at some point, maybe toward the end, because I'm fascinated by that subject. And I've, like I said, I've talked to Marlene Winnell, as well as some other people, Laura Anderson, Janice Selby, Andrew Jasko. You know, these are great, wonderful people who have been on the show who have incredible insights because we've all come out of religion. You know, so we've yeah. all suffered from religious trauma syndrome. But, you know, something that really resonated when you were talking about your livelihood being tied to your beliefs it just struck me when you were describing that, when you were the pastor of this church, you know, the job that I have now, I mean, I'm an instructor. I teach carpentry and joinery and plastering and painting and bricklaying and all that kind of stuff. You know, what I believe doesn't have any bearing on whether or not I can build a wall or paint a wall or, you know, that they don't care what I believe as far as that goes. This job is really strange because I keep thinking, okay, what I believe doesn't matter. Like you say, when you're a pastor, you're always thinking, okay, if I say that I disagree with something or I voice something that someone has a problem with, I could actually lose my job. Oh, yeah. I mean, how strange is that? I told you that this that I recently, right before this, when I did another podcast with um, Neil, Mm -hmm. And that one, I told you that was the first podcast I've done since my deconversion. But I used to do podcasts a lot and interviews and speak about things prior to that. I've published in a bunch of different places, Papios, things like that. The weirdest one that I ever did, and I knew it was going to be weird going in because I listened to him and the guy was fucking nuts, was, <laughs> right. um, was I, I had published an article at the time, and I was still a Christian, but I, I published an article about reclaiming some of the feminine adjectives for God throughout the Bible which apparently pissed off Jesse Lee Peterson. I don't know if you, uh, if you know who that is. No, who's Jesse Lee Peterson? I've never heard not, of him. Um, yeah, well, he's been on Fox and stuff like that, but just nuts. Like, the, the guy argues that, I mean, part of, part of his argument that he often presents is that um, we see that America is in decline and has been in decline ever since we gave women the right to vote. Like this, it's, this. <laughs> okay. like That's that, where he's going. That, Oh, right. Oh, yeah. He's, he's just out in left field. Well, he invited, he wanted me to come in and be interviewed on his radio show about this article. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that and whether or not to do it and knew I would have to go prepared. So I requested ahead of time, give me some of the topics we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. He didn't talk about any of the topics they sent me. Not one of them. He sent just me these, like, what about these? Be prepared. No. And then we went completely left field but everything that he did want to talk about that he did because what he was doing was he was trying to find controversial things knowing that i'm actively a pastor controversial things to try to nail me on it was an hour long and it was only and it was on national radio at the time and the, and it was only like the last maybe 10 minutes that we ever got into talking about the article that i wrote the rest of it was gender roles in marriage on abortion homosexuality things like it was just always and i and at the time, well, and still, though it's shifted a little bit, the United Methodist Church has consistently been in turmoil over what stance they're going to take with regards to the ordination of gay clergy. Mm -hmm. Because the language in their thing says that um, this is, that homosexuality is not biblical, but we love everybody, right? So we'll love you, but you can't be a pastor was kind of the thing. And every four years when they would have general conference, that would come to a head. And what would happen is you have groups in like high leadership that are very 
pro-ordination of homosexual clergy and people in really high leadership that are very anti. So this becomes super politicized. So if you are going through the process and you overtly align with either side of that, your future and whether you progress or not as yeah. a pastor yeah. is entirely dependent on the on whether the political climate of the group at that time aligns with your position right. and that group changes every year so hmm. he would ask me that and he would and he run up and he's like well what do you what is your view on um on gay clergy and i'm like i am not answering this on national radio i'm not gonna nail this down I so I sidebarred that I deflected that all the, because because what I espouse as a personal view was intrinsically tied to whether or not I could continue as mm-hmm. in, in in the career. Yeah. So your career trajectory is tied to what you believe about even just this one issue. Yeah, you have to toe yeah, the unbelievable. line. Then you get into things like this, and there's not a clear line to toe either. So you're like, this is just a landmine. When we come back from the break, we're going to get even more into this issue of what it's like to be a pastor, something that both Thomas and I know all too well, spending way too many years being a pastor in evangelical churches. We're also going to get into some of the belief systems, some of the religious trauma that so often is a part of evangelicalism and how that actually affects people in churches, in evangelical religion. And this is something we're going to circle back around and do another episode specifically on RTS or religious trauma syndrome and religion and mental health. As a therapist, Thomas is really uniquely positioned. He's an expert on RTS, so we're going to be having him back around. And speaking of which, I'm really excited to announce that Thomas is going to be coming in as our guest in March for one of our MindShift Zoom calls that we have. We're having two of these now a month, so I'm really excited to announce that Thomas is going to be our guest in March. I'm really looking forward to introducing him to our closed Facebook group people. These are the people that support the show on Patreon, and they have access to those monthly MindShift Zoom calls, as well as we're doing just patrons-only calls. We did our first one on the 7th of February. It was absolutely fantastic. We met everybody for about an hour, had a really good chat about a lot of different discussion topics, and we're going to do those every month. So we're going to be doing actually three calls a month which is really cool, developing an online supportive community of ex-religious people, ex-evangelical people. That is hugely important in the process or in the journey of rebuilding your identity post-cult or post-religion. You need the support of other people who have been through some of the stuff that you've been through. So I'm really excited to be a part of forming that community in a weird way. Someone mentioned it's kind of like our church because we do them on Sundays, even though it's about the farthest thing from a church that you can imagine. So what's coming up the next few episodes? Well, I just wanted to talk about that too. I've got a fantastic discussion again with Frank Schaefer. We went back and looked at the roots, the origins of the Christian right when he and his famous father, Francis Schaefer, were helping to form that religious right And how shocking, how surprising it is that that base that they were tapping into, people like Jerry Falwell Sr. and Pat Robertson forming the Moral Majority and all these other groups back in the 70s and 80s, that is basically the base that has supported Donald Trump. 
so rapidly over the last four years and still continues to support him. And so Frank and I had a really good discussion. Also, speaking of Frank Schaefer, he's coming out with a new book later on this year, and I've got a chance to take a look at an advanced copy of that book. And then we're going to host a Zoom call just with Frank and people in our closed group as we discuss his new book. So I am really looking forward to chatting with Frank again and getting him back in on one of our MindShift Zoom calls maybe in the next few months. Also, we've got a chat coming up with Dr. Terry Daniels. She is a co-host of the Ask Dr. Death podcast. We had a really fascinating discussion about mental health, religion, kind of overlapping some of the stuff that Thomas and I are going into in this episode. So that is coming up as well, the next episode here on the show. And then finally, I'm working on a standalone episode on Jerry Falwell Sr. That episode, along with the one with Frank Schaefer, is part of my new series, which is the Profiles of the Christian Right. I've done a lot of research on Jerry Falwell Sr. and the forming of the Moral Majority back in 1979 and how that has led to the Trump base that we see again today. So that's an episode that's coming up, a standalone episode on Jerry Falwell Sr. taking a deep dive into his role in forming the Christian right. So lots of really cool stuff coming up. All right, let's get on back into the chat with Thomas Hanna. I think especially if you're a pastor or an ex-pastor or you know someone who was or is a pastor, you'll get a lot out of the second half of this discussion or if you identify as an ex-evangelical. So let's finish up the second half of this great conversation. Yeah, I can, well, I can't imagine, but I, I know what it's like to be in a position where yeah, I've been in trouble for saying something in a sermon, for example, and yeah. somebody took me to task later. You know, I've mentioned before we had one guy at our church that used to write out a six to eight page handwritten letter every time we had a woman preach. All of his biblical reasons why it was wrong and unbiblical for a woman to preach and teach men and all the rest of it, you know, and, and it was just a, a regular thing from this guy, you know, mm -hmm. so it just caused trouble and, and controversy every single time. Oh, yeah. And so we just dealt with him as best we could. We should have kicked him out of the church. We should have, you know, I don't know why we didn't. The elders at the time were too afraid of him, strangely. And that they should have booted him out. Oh, yeah, there's troublemakers remember, in churches. I remember, because, again, moving pastors around, one of the churches I was at that the, moved the senior, the, the United Methodist Church, the United Methodist Church does affirm the ordination of female clergy. So you have women pastors. Not just women that come in and preach, but you have actual women pastors that are over the leadership of the entire mm -hmm. church. And so when they moved the pastor there to a different location with new pastor in, the new pastor they moved in was female. And there was like a third of the church that just got up and left. Just walked out. They just are like, we're not going to go to, we're going to go to a church that has a male pastor. Period. Yep. We're just <laughs> out of here. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, in, it was interesting. <laughs> that's a good way to say it. yeah very political answer interesting for sure yeah well, you have to learn politics in your past you have to <laughs> yeah you got to placate everybody it's and it's impossible isn't it that's the thing about the job is it's such a thankless it can be such a thankless exhausting job and you're burning yourself out i mean i burned out in ministry there's no doubt about it I quit the church and I did not want to ever, ever go back and be a pastor, which was a lot of my motivation in getting into academics and then Bible college teaching because I thought, well, I can help these men and women avoid some of the pitfalls that I fell into when I was a pastor. 
and I can, you know, sort of warn them, steer clear of these danger spots, but you'll never ever get away from all of them. Well, you? you're going to fall into some trap somewhere. Yeah. It's, it's not ministry is just a perpetual field of mines. Like it is. Yeah. Landmines. Yeah. There, sometimes you can, there's a lot of times where you can not do the right thing. That's for like sure. There's no right answer. But there is almost no situation where you cannot do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's that. But then there's also there's this there's this really bizarre scenario. I think this is part of the reason why you see so many pastors that wind up in affairs or alcoholism is really is is one of the leading addictions with pastors because we create an environment where you have an authority over this community. You are supposed to establish intimate like like emotionally intimate connections with the people there be present with them in their you know deepest and darkest moments be transparent open honest with them but also remain aloof so you have to remain separate so that you can be present with them but they can't be present really with you Mm -hmm. or if they are there's a certain there's a certain level that is like but yet this is the community also that you are doing life with so you don't really have an out you have very you're very limited i should say in the outside mm-hmm. community and so what will often happen is they will try to cultivate a community of pastors and the pastors will get together but now what really happens with pastors when they get together is they're like this is how big my church has gotten this year. so we have all of those and so there's it, there's mm-hmm. never really this ability to actually be vulnerable or transparent about the garbage you're going through. And then the people that you are emotionally intimate with, you have to try to remain. So there's this persistent sense of isolation. There's persistent sense of burnout. You have to be very clear about setting boundaries and time that you are not the pastor. I had Fridays, I told the the congregation that they could not, they, they could call me, but I would not answer my phone. I would check messages and I would decide if it was an emergency mm-hmm. to my standards. And if it was not, I would call them the next time I was in the office. And they, re- they respected that. But you had to be really clear on that. Yeah, there's set those so boundaries. Many, yeah, there's just so many things that are life sucking if you aren't extremely diligent at all times. It just it creates an environment where people are set up to fail. It is destructive it's to marriages. It's destructive to individuals. It's destructive to communities. It can be really harmful. And I can remember simple things like you. We, we used to go on men's retreats, and of course, you, the pastor, were expected to be the speaker. And these all the guys that you're in your church with, and you're friends with most of them. And yet, you know, you walk into a room and they're having a laugh about something, and and they'll all stop and go, "Oh, oh here comes the pastor." You know, watch what watch what you say. You know, no, no, no swearing, no, you know, none of that kind of stuff. And you're like, guys, it's just me. But you can't be just one of the guys, can you? Can't because if if and they always say we want you to be vulnerable, like you said, we want you to be transparent. And then when you are, you get in trouble for it. <laughs> you yeah. know, they put you up yeah. on a pedestal, and then they throw rocks at you. So you, it's a no win. Exactly, it's such a no win scenario. No wonder right. so many people burn out in ministry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why you see so many aspects. You can't be honest about the things that you're no. going through. Um, you can't afford to. You know. You could um, lose your job. Not with your community, at least. There are, I mean, to be fair, there are some pastors that, um, that I've known that have, that have done well with this and have been able to establish ways that they're navigating it. But it's, but man, you, you, you there, there are so many ways downhill and so few uphill. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Not help me bad. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Easily slippery slope. Yeah. Yeah. So well, that, yeah, this topic of this is interesting because obviously if anyone's out there who's listening, who's a pastor or an ex pastor, I'm sure they're going to resonate with what we're talking about. How does that bleed into the religious trauma syndrome piece? Because I certainly feel like I suffered from RTS from my time as a pastor. As you're saying, I burned out. I was one of those guys that was burning myself out, wearing myself out, working 60, 70 hours a week and only getting paid for 30 hours a week, killing myself literally, physically, emotionally. Uh, and for what? You know? Sure. And well, so now I've got to seek tr- uh, therapy and all these other things to deal with that part of my life when I was a pastor and a leader in a church? Well, there, there are so, there are so many ways. Well, let's, I mean, let's pick one. Like, let's talk about like the shame that, that is carried with that. Right. Because I'll tell you, this kind of pisses me off a little bit because you kind of have two, two bodies. You have pastors that elevate the idea of income being a marker of God's grace. Right. And so Mm -hmm. they're going to push for ties. They're going to really push to make just a ton of money. Okay. And then you have the pastors that elevate poverty. So one, you're going, one of them you're going to manipulate inherently by their own theology, manipulate and extort their congregation. And as they come away from that, now there's guilt and shame for the way that I extorted and guilted my mm-hmm. congregation, right? Yeah. And then on the other side of that, there is um, those that believe that, I don't want to say poverty, but, the, but poverty is almost linked to this idea of humility Right. Mm-hmm. And, and the antithesis of greed, greed is bad. So I accept being poor. And so there's, and so pastors will take very, they'll, they'll limit the amount of money that they get. They'll, they'll be paid very little, but they will overload themselves. Things that would never be acceptable in the secular world outside of ways that we see that we struggle with corporations that extort people. Um, only they're not only pastors are not doing it to themselves and they're doing it themselves because they believe that's aspects of holiness and righteousness. And then they come out of that. And now we have to deal with this whole idea that it's okay to make a decent wage, right? That wanting to attend to my needs and to focus on being healthy, if that means saying no to somebody else is bad, right? This idea, there's this concept that goes with this, that um, sacrifice, being self, self-sacrifice is this virtue. When what we're learning is how to be self-destructive, we're learning how to, we're, we are undermining the ability to set healthy boundaries. We are accepting toxicity into our life because you know what? It's not very Christian to tell Aunt Ruth, um, who is you know, racist and homophobic, who attacks me for being gay, that um, that's not okay because you know what? You need to love Aunt Ruth anyway. Mm-hmm. And maybe saying to somebody, it's not okay the way you're treating me. And if you're going to continue treating me this way, I'm going to remove myself from this interaction. Maybe that's healthy. Mm-hmm. And so there's all of these aspects that go in with some of those perspectives with shame that comes out. There's so many more that the the workload that we do this idea of um you know the christian work ethic mm-hmm. which is about overburdening overburdening ourselves you talked about burnout with this sense of always having to be on mm-hmm. there's just, there are so 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 many different elements that we wind up carrying with it, and that's just one facet and that's for pastors and i think too 
what about the person in the congregation? Because I'm thinking, okay, I used to say the average evangelical, okay, they're nice people, they're friendly people, they you know, they're good citizens and all the rest of it. They work hard. They're they're mostly loving for the most part. But yet now I'm starting to see they're part of a toxic system. I think you were mentioning that the toxicity, that evangelicalism, it's not all bad, it's not all a cult. But there's a lot of cult-like stuff that goes on, as I see it now, in terms of the psychology of it, the emotional control, the manipulation, the behavioral control. These are things straight out of the world of the cults. And now, what I feel like I'm dealing with in my own personal life in terms of religious trauma syndrome is working through the things that were done to me when I was a kid, when I was growing up in church, that I was controlled, I was manipulated, I had a lot of anxieties and things like that because of the theology that I was taught to believe was true. Yeah. So, you know, then you've got to deal with all that too. Sure. I, I, I've shared this story before. I don't remember if I shared it when I was on either podcast or not, but one of my first realizations of just the, the level, the subtle level of the way that um, religion sort of infiltrates our thinking was a client, one of my very first clients that I worked with in my internship. Um, when I, so this was when I was still working on my master's degree, who was dealing with sexual trauma. And we had worked through, um, by this point, we had already identified some of the cognitive distortions that take place. Um, we, were, we were able to um, develop the skills to manage some of the anxieties that come up when we think about those. And so those were manageable now. And so now we were starting to work through aspects of the narrative. And there was this wall that we kept coming up till we realized that this wall was that, that she had grown up in, in this purity culture idea. And, mm-hmm. and the whole concept of the purity culture is that you want to, you want to be modest. You want to dress and carry yourself in a way that is not, does not cause your brother to lust, right? You're not a temptation. You don't want to cause your brother to sin. So mm. the responsibility for your brother's sexual behavior is placed upon you and the presentation that you're giving. So mm-hmm. now I'm working with this lady who was um, repeatedly sexually assaulted in a very, um, in a very toxic relationship and had a hard time moving to the point where it was that person's fault because this perception of I'm responsible for the loss of other people. Mm. Even that idea of lust is toxic in and of itself. But the idea that I'm responsible for these sexual, like the sexual thoughts of others means that I must have done something if this person was going to assault me. So, so it was deconstructing that, that we finally, and we finally at this point in the narrative where she didn't even catch it, the language had shifted, where the anger was, was directed at him, the pronouns shifted instead of myself, it was him. And when we paused and I pointed out the shift and that, that was, that was the moment that we saw this sort of, that was, that was one of those like key breakthrough moments in that, with that particular client. But that was all religiously based, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the idea, and, and, and that's still an aspect that we, that we, that culturally, we still uplift as, as good. Well, you want to teach your children, you want to teach your girls to be modest. You don't want them to be dressing in a way that makes men look at them like a sexual object and da, da, da. I mean, the way that we look at people and the way that the responsibility needs to be placed on the person 
when we talk about control, when I sit with clients, we talk about control. Um, I, I teach it as a pyramid and, and we have a pyramid in the cloud and it's traditionally taught in concentric circles. I teach it as a pyramid, but the bottom of the pyramid are the things that are firmly in our control that give us a sense of stability when we're putting our time, energy, and attention into them. Those are our own thoughts, behaviors, emotions, or reactions. We can control those. The top part of the pyramid are the things that we kind of interact with. Those are things like career, relationships, stuff where I have areas of that that I can control based off of my own thoughts, behaviors, reactions, but so does somebody else. So it's, they have things that they plug into it as well. So I can only control my part of it, but they, they, they interact. Outside of that, we have this cloud, which are all the things we have no control over. You know, the thoughts, behaviors, emotions of others, their reactions, mm -hmm. accidents, past, things like that. But those are often the cause of our anxiety. So when we pour our time, energy, and attention into there, we invert the whole thing and our pyramid is, is upside down and it's wobbly and there's no stability. And there's, we do that with Christianity. We mm. invert the pyramid. That's interesting. We, um, this, I, the thing with the sexual trauma I was talking about, uh, suddenly if I'm responsible for, the, for your thoughts, I don't have control over your thoughts. But, but, I, but when I make myself responsible, I'm displacing that responsibility. And, and now I am trying to take control of things that are outside of my control. And now I start to feel out of control because mm. where I am trying to pour all of my energy into is nothing's happening. And now I feel like I have no control over what's happening, right? Because I'm not, because I don't, I'm not taking control of the things I can control. I'm putting all my energy over there. When we deal with, when we deal with prayer, like we eliminate, and this is part of the theology, we eliminate that cloud entirely. Mm -hmm. Because if it's something that I can't control, I can at least move it out of the cloud into the top part of the pyramid where now there's an interaction, right? My part is that I pray. And then God's part is that he does something or doesn't do something with my prayer. So if I pray, something may or may not happen. But at least... I'm interacting with this in a way that puts it into my sphere of influence. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because it offloads our personal responsibility, doesn't on to God, onto something else. If something bad happens, well, that could be the result of demonic activity, Satan's leading me astray, you know, or God didn't answer my prayer, maybe he's telling me to wait, or maybe, you know, there's all that. I remember that's that saying God's yeah. answers are yes, no, and maybe, you know. Right. So you have yeah. to figure yeah. out yeah. which well, one it is. Cool. It does both. So it, it offloads our responsibility. So the things that I'm responsible for, I might blame on, on, on demons or something else. But it also sticks me in a spot where um, I am trying, where I may, I, I, I don't ever learn what things to let go of. Because mm -hmm. if I can't, if something is happening over here that I have no control over, instead of learning how to cope with letting go of control and focusing on how I respond to it. That's how we engage in healthy coping mechanisms. I can't control this. It may impact me, but I don't have control over this. All I can control is how I respond to it. So I put my time, energy, and attention there. But we don't learn that. We learn, okay, I can't control this. It's affecting me. I'm going to find a way to feel like I have some control. And that's where that, that's where that prayer comes in. I'm going to try to at least control this to some degree, by praying so I don't feel so out of control. Mm. Instead of learning what are the things that we can control, and putting our time, effort, and energy into those, and what are the things we need to learn how to let go of and become okay with letting go of those things. That is fascinating stuff. Now I'm thinking we could keep going down this line for hours. I love talking about this kind of stuff. We talked a little bit before 
about maybe doing a separate episode. Maybe we could circle back around and pick up this thread at another point, because I'm interested in taking a deep dive into religious trauma syndrome and some of the things we've been touching on here. I've also been doing a load of research on the topic of religion and mental health, which is another whole area. So I'm thinking maybe we should wrap this up now, put a bow on it for the minute. Let's come back around. If you're interested, let's talk about religious trauma syndrome, religion and mental health, and maybe really take a deep dive. If you're interested, that's what we should do. I'm wondering too, then how can people find you? What's the best way to get a hold of you on social media? So, so my, my social media account um, is it's at T Sakari. I, I named it after I, that's actually my personal account that when I was first kind of exploring coming out of the whole mm-hmm. um, religious world and, and wanted to explore things without necessarily putting my name on it. The Sakari were actually, historically, they were a group of intertestamental assassins that was like... <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Jewish assassins. Sounds yeah, kick-ass, man. <laughs> and so I just always thought, I just, I don't know, in, in, I cool. always thought they were kind of a neat historical thing. So I took that name. But um, they, they can find me there. They can also, particularly if there are people that are um, dealing with uh, religious trauma or just, you know, some of the mental health things that come out of that, they can also find me at tempestcounseling.com, Tempest, like the storm, mm-hmm. T-E-M-P-E-S-T. So they can find me there as well, tempestcounseling.com, um, and, and they can be able to, to email me or reach out to me through that also. Let's come back around at some point. I'll message you and we can figure out a day and a time to do this again. Let's talk about religious trauma syndrome, mental health and religion. Let's take a deep dive into it. So thank you so much, Thomas. I'm looking forward to coming back around and talking to you again. Likewise, thank you for inviting me on.